Oh, I forgot to put it back on. Now, that was my fault. So you guys didn't hear that through the live stream, but it was heard through the video. Uh, I mean, uh, through the class here. So does everybody understand that? We, as pastors, have life experience, and through our life experience, we win. We teach you about our wins. We help you to avoid our losses. We do not use our losses to be the standard. You don't have to ever get a divorce. You don't ever have to be depressed. You don't ever have to be worried and filled uh, full of anxiety in ministry. You don't ever have to uh, need to take a long sabbatical. You can want to take a sabbatical, write a book, do fun things. That's great. But you should never have to. Does everybody get that? And I just want to repeat this again so everybody can hear. So make sure you edit out just wherever I'm starting here. You know, this that little bit that we've added on. Um, what I want to make sure everybody understands is we don't follow losers, we follow winners. We don't look to David and say he was so awesome because he got to commit adultery and be forgiven. David's child died. Do you understand the consequence of his adultery? He had his kingdom ripped away from him by one of his sons. He then had his other son backslide. We don't even know if Solomon's in heaven right now. Do you guys understand that? So we don't follow losers. We follow winners. Listen to a few Lester Summerall sermons. Get back to old school preachers. Listen to a few Leonard Ravenhill sermons. Go back to the preachers who knew what they were doing, who started and finished well. So we don't live like last time I was here by the ups and downs. We don't attach ourselves to the praises or we die by the criticisms. We don't attach ourselves to the victories or we die by the defeats. We stay right even kill, right in the middle with what God is doing in our lives. Our Christianity, our spiritual walk is not dependent upon others' obedience. It's not dependent upon the results. Though we do results, we look for results, we are pragmatic in that way, but not as a foundation. Our foundation is obedience, and then we look for things to work out and where God is leading. But first and foremost, we are obedient. Amen? Now today is going to be another one, but it's going to be totally unrelated to what I shared with you before, and it's going to be about our worldview and two of the most major things that I have understood by God's grace that people get wrong, that I get wrong, and that it's a subtle deception. It is a subtle deception, and I guarantee you, when you see it like this, you will never see it the same again. I promise you this, because God is going to put this deep into your heart today. I really believe that. The scriptures are going to come after I make the point. So as opposed to how I normally start, and I always like to give you step-by-step because you guys are in chapel and you guys can learn what's going on, how I make it in front of you. This is like a cooking show. I'm putting it together in front of you because you'll be doing this for others. Today I'm not going to start with a text on not being deceived and explain deception and go on from there and give examples. What I'm going to do is start with how we're being deceived and then give you the scriptural answers. It's just because of limit of time. If I was writing a book, if I was preaching, in a sermon series, I would start with something about deception and understanding how uh, the, the serpent, the snake, came in the garden and used subtle deceptions, uh, half-truths with half-lies, you know, bringing in those things. And, and then through that, these are the things that have come into our culture. But I don't have time, so we just got to skip right to where we're being deceived. The first uh, set of circles, and remember, we always got to have this out the way, okay, guys? Can I get an amen from whoever put that there or didn't see that? We always got to have that out the way, please, and thank you. 
This is what I want you to understand. I've got two sets of deceptions, the way that people see things. Now, the first one up here to the left is the way even most Christians see the world. And these uh, two circles, one is like a white and the other one is like a gray. I want you to understand they're not even two ratio. I want you to pretend the white circle represents something the size of the ocean, the size of the ocean. And I want you to think of the second circle as something that represents a grain of sand. Okay, imagine taking one grain of sand, going to the ocean, and dropping it in, okay? This is how most Christians think. They think that the vast majority of the entire known universe is natural, Everything you see, matter, space, and time, stars, the earth we're on, all of the planets. And they think that the spiritual is this little spirit that lives on the side of them. And, and everything that's spiritual is really small compared to everything in this vast universe that is natural. That is exactly the opposite. The entire universe is nothing but a speck of sand in the infinite, eternal, powerful nature of God in which it came from. We are more spiritual than we are natural. You are surrounded by spirit. This was created by spirit. I do not believe in pantheism, which is the spiritual nature of God is equal to the natural order nature of the world. That's not what I believe. But I will read you three scriptures that are very clear that in every space, whether it's the microscope to the telescope, is surrounded, encompassed, upheld by the literal presence, power, force of God. And then outside of this thing we call a known universe, 10 point some billion years old as they make believe it in science, but we know it's only around 6,000, but they measure that by the speed of light. We just don't believe everything traveled at the same speed when he said, let there be light. Uh, but anyways, what we see in that entire universe, including you and everything in it, is a speck of sand surrounded by the hand of God. Do you understand how amazing that is when you think about it? You are not just a physical being in a physical universe and a physical galaxy and a physical solar system and all these other things with a little spirit living on the inside of you. You are a spirit which has come from spirit and the spirit that which we have come from sustains everything we see and know. There's no escaping his spirit, and his spirit is so vast to this universe, it's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible to how vast his spirit is, to what this is as a grain of sand, this entire known universe. Let's go to some of these scriptures. Psalm 137 seven and onward, and I'm going to have to go to my uh, phone Bible because uh, I want to be able to see what you guys are seeing. So I'm just going to go to the notes here and follow along. And Psalm 137, as of right now, we don't need to do that. So keep it on the screen, please, and I'll let you know if we need to come back to that. 
Psalm 137 is David speaking, and this is what he says. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. Now, how many know when he said heavens, he meant every layer of atmosphere, every place where the stars hang, every place that we will ever discover in the natural universe. How many know that's what he meant? He literally just said, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. There is no place God has to go to get. He is already there. He meets us there. He'll meet us there if we ever travel to Pluto. He's, he's watching that satellite, whatever those, those things that we have sent out. He's just watching it. Just like you would watch a little, a little toy boat just float in your bathtub. He's just watching this thing float. It's nothing to him. He surrounds it. He's already there. He's not getting there. He's already there. He's where light was before it traveled there. Do you understand? He's what sustained it. He's what sustains what we call there. He sustains there. He sustains everywhere. There's no way to get away from him. You're not away from him in a plane. You're not away from him at the bottom of the ocean. You're not away from him ever. You're not away from him. It says, if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. There is nowhere to go away from God's presence. Romans 11.36 says, for from him, now notice this, and through him. For from him and through him. That's why I believe not in pantheism, but I believe in pan-in-theism. Pan, all, in, means in. You spell it P-A-N-E-N. The Greek word en is oftentimes synonymous with the English word I-N. So it sounds similar. It's helpful. Pan means all. Pan-in-theism. All in God. That's where I get this from. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And here is Paul quoting from one of their poets and makes it part of divine revelation, Acts 17, 28. For in him, pan in theism, all in him. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, we are his offspring. Now there's a certain kind of paganism that follows pan-entheism. There can be a pagan theism. Just because the word is being applied to what I'm talking about doesn't mean I believe in all ways that, all ways that it's been applied. How many know a person who worships Zeus is a theist? Do you guys understand that? They're a theist. They believe in God or a polytheist. That would probably be more accurate. But how many know Muslims are theists, monotheists, etc.? but they don't worship God like we do. So if you ever find online or some discussion about panentheism that doesn't agree with what I'm teaching you now, that's because they're wrong and what I'm teaching you is right uh, by God's grace. And I don't agree with that. So, I mean, just understand the term as I define it. We have come through him. We are now living in him. Does everybody get it when you put those two verses together, Romans 11 and Acts 17? We are from him. That means we started over here from. We then came through to be where we are now. 
and now currently we are in. From, through, and in. You came from your house, you went through this door, now you are in here. God is the kind of God, he says, when you came from that place, I was there. When you went in this place, I, when you came through the door, I was here. When you came into this place, I was here. He was in all places of that movement, from, through, in. You will never come from a place he hasn't created. You will never go through a place he hasn't created. You will never be in a place he has not created and not only created, but is presently, presently, powerfully sustaining it. Now think about all the implications that come into that. I mean, now we got the theological understanding of it, but now, I mean, let's just apply it. I mean, it's just, it's amazing what you can do with that kind of a worldview. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is that Jesus' teachings on prayer and nothing being impossible make sense now. There's nothing impossible in this place for our God. And if prayer and faith in him is what he told us to do to interact with that power, well, then we might as well look at a mountain and tell it to move then. What is a mountain to our God? If the entire universe is but a speck of sand to the ocean of his power, what is a partial peck of speck of sand to his power? That's why he talked to us that way. That's why he was teaching us those things. That's why he walked on water. Not to do a magic show, but to show the world that, that, that water is no different than concrete to him and his power. He gives the power of a law to function. He gives the power for matter and space and time, space-time, to do what it does. And if he wants to interact in it in ways that is not according to the natural law, so it will supersede, it will actually be supra, supranatural, not just super, it will supersede supra. It will supersede the natural. That is an amazing thing for our God to do at any time. He can supersede things at any time. It's all his to do. Now, he'll never do anything illogical. He'll never supersede mathematical laws because we believe those come from his mind, and he doesn't lie. And lying is equivalent to error. Does everybody get that? Lying is equivalent to error. You lied when you put that wrong answer on your math equation. Now, we attach lying to moral behavior, and so we understand you weren't intentionally doing that. It was a mistake. But if you want to be in philosophical terms, your error was a lie to the truth. It was not in correspondence to the truth. The truth corresponds to God's reality. God is the first ruler by which we go and then get all of our other rulers made. How does a factory know how to make a ruler? Where did they get their ruler from? From someone else that already made a ruler? Well, where did that person get their ruler from? How do we really know what an inch is? What if an inch was this and we've forgotten it? How do we know? Somewhere it has to be started. This will be an inch, and we're going to pass it on, and we're going to make sure we, you know, we photograph it or we do something with it, kind of like Big Ben with the time. The world's clocks revolve around Big Ben. It's been there longer than any other clock. So we're like, uh, you know, okay, that's the time. That's how we know what time is. Just to blow your mind right now, what if it was 1966 and we forgot to keep count of some years? You know, how do you know? 
Another question is a lot of people are brought up knowing their birthdays. What if your parents didn't keep track of those things? There's certain cultures where I've seen documentaries. They don't know their birthday. I think I'm somewhere between 20 and 25, but I'm not entirely sure. Wouldn't that just mess with your head? Because we all just think in terms of time like that. We think of all of these things kind of being here, but we're all taking them for granted because we don't know where the first ruler is. We don't know where the first time is. We just started counting at some point. We started measuring at some point. Well, God is the reality in which all things are measured. His mind is what sustains all things that can be known. If it can be known, it's because God knows it. God knew of cell phones. God knew of computers. God knew of astronauts. God knew of clothing. God knew of all of it. God knows so you can know. He is the reality in which all truth corresponds. So we call that the correspondence of truth theory. That if there is not something for truth to correspond to in reality, we can't know. Now, that's not just what I say. That's what atheists say. That's what unbelievers say. They come to these points just like I do it, do it here, and they're stumped. That's why when I meet that 18-year-old kid tonight when I go preach and he thinks he knows better, I'm like, you don't know what you don't know yet. You're arguing out of ignorance. You're like my child, and you're literally saying money does grow on trees because I've seen my dad get it from a tree. And all I did one day was just tape it there to trick them. They don't understand what they don't know. Oh, I can figure out a a way to come up with truth without a God. Oh, sure, go ahead. Disprove all of the atheist philosophers that have come before you that spent 20, 30, 40 years trying to do it. Go ahead. Disprove David Hume. Go ahead. Bertrand Russell in the history of Western philosophy. Go ahead. I'm sure you'll do just fine. Go for it. We've got a camera watching you now. Of course they can't do it. It wasn't able to be done. It's not possible. As a matter of fact, what I want to do is read to you from Bertrand Russell's book, The History of Western Civilization, uh, uh, The History of Philosophy in the Western Civilization. He wrote the book also, Why I'm Not a Christian. He was one of the most famous atheists of the mid uh, 20th century. And I want to read to you some of his quotes about this. That's why. We have to take this serious. The the name of the book is The History, let me make sure I get The History of Western Philosophy. Okay. The philosophers who cannot be refuted in this way are those who do not pretend to be rational, such as Rousseau, Schopenhauer, and Nietzsche. The growth of unreason throughout the 19th century and what has passed of the 20th century is a natural sequel to Hume's destruction of empiricism. Nietzsche gave up on trying to be rational. He's a nihilist. He developed nihilism, which means you cannot prove rationality, so accept irrationality and do the best you can irrationally. The reason is, is because David Hume, who was an atheist himself, who believed you could only know what is true by what you can prove with science or your senses, it's called empiricism, in his quest of that, realized he could not prove empiricism with empiricism. He could not use his senses to prove a philosophical point. The philosophical point of using his senses had to be assumed first to use his senses to make all the points he was going to make off empiricism. So he couldn't start with something other than his senses to prove his senses. It's like a fish in water trying to do something outside of water to prove water. They can't leave water. 
He couldn't leave his senses. He couldn't stand outside of his senses. Even if someone were to say, like the most stupidest thing is they say, well, I'm going to test my senses with science. I'm going to ask other people, you Oompa Loompa, you're still using your senses when you listen to the other one tell you what their senses found. You're still using your senses when you say you're going to go test your senses. You are not smarter than David Hume, you silly willy. How did you not understand what we were telling you? You can't get out of your senses. If everything in the matrix was glossed over with a green hue, like those of us who work with Photoshop can tell you, it's easy to put a green hue. If everything was there, everything you would test would be a green hue. Your eyes would be seeing green hues. The whole world would have a green hue. There would no way to get outside of a green hue. You would not be able to. It would be impossible. And if the green hue was built into the program, you wouldn't know what something was without a green hue. So this is what Bertrand Russell continues to say. It is therefore important to discover whether there is any answer to Hume within the framework of philosophy that is wholly or mainly empirical. So Hume, the great empiricist who ran into his own dead end, and realized that he couldn't even prove his empiricism and now has made that the problem of induction, the problem of empiricism, the problem of science, etc. Bertrand Russell is saying, if no one can get past what Hume discovered, we're all in trouble. If not, this is what, Hume, uh, this is what Russell says, if we can't defeat Hume's problem, there is no intellectual difference between sanity and insanity. So you think some street monger on the, uh, you know, some street barbarian on the streets as we're witnessing is going to debunk Russell and Hume, some of the greatest minds? They don't even understand them. They just heard our argument walking by and thought they could step up and change something. Come on, somebody. They literally look like cavemen compared to this conversation. They might as well just, ooh, oh, 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 I believe in truth. Oh, oh, in my truth. Oh, 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 oh. Just cavemen, imbeciles, brute beasts. They might as well just come up there and bark over the microphone. They have zero intellectual integrity to bring to that conversation. We're playing soccer, and they're grabbing the ball and shooting it like a hoop as if they're playing basketball. Oh, I can easily get it in there. I can use my hands. That's an entirely different game. You have contradicted yourself. You have no sense of what we're trying to do. We're playing chess, and you're the pigeon who poops on the chessboard. Do you understand? We're in the Times Square. We're in New York City playing chess, and you're the pigeon that's just flown over and pooped on it, and you think you've done something. All you've done on the chessboard is made a mess. Excuse us, we have to clean that now. Can we get back to the actual game that we're playing, the actual discussion of intellect here, now that your pigeon has flown over and pooped on it? This is what he says, Bertrand Russell, referring back to Hume on the history of Western philosophy, which means no one has done it. I'll continue on. The, the one who cannot solve this problem has no way to intellectually know the difference between sanity and insanity, the lunatic who believes that he is a poached egg is to be condemned solely on the ground that he is in a minority, or rather, since we must not assume democracy, on the ground that the government does not agree with him. 
This is a desperate point of view, and it must be hoped that there is some way of escaping from it. He goes on. We're hoping we can escape from it. The principle itself cannot, of course, without circularity, be inferred from observed uniformities. We can't do it by our senses, since it is required to justify any such inference. It must, therefore, be or be deduced from an independent principle not based on experience. To this extent, Hume has proved that no pure empiricism is not, uh, excuse me, this To this extent, Hume has proved that pure empiricism is not a sufficient basis for science. The only way you can get out of it is to say, I assume that it is true based on an independent principle. Oh dear, Bertrand Russell, what is your outside principle? I would love to examine that. What are you assuming? What is your foundation? Tell us. Tell us about it. See, mine at least makes sense. God is a mind, I have a mind. God is rational, we understand rational things. God is a creator, there is a creation. I'll go on all day. What is, what is your outside principle? The idea isn't that you are some type of little spirit running around in some huge world of natural things. You are a part of a small speck of dust called the natural world and a small speck of time called 6,000 years of human history that is fully encompassed through and through penetrated by the presence and the power of God. Bow your knee to that and all that you do intellectually and all that you do relationally and all that you do spiritually, bow your knee to that reality. So the first thing is you can pray to move mountains. That's a great implication. The second thing is you can work in the real world and have a foundation for everything you do. And then lastly is you can have meaning and purpose. It's obvious that these guys can't have it. They're still trying to describe if they can even have rationality to know the difference between them existing as a person or a poached egg. That's why when I read from people like Alex Rosenberg, and I'll do it here just for those of you who have not heard it, there are some that are new to the the school this year, but we have read it here before in our Worldview uh, series. And his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, he gives the most clearest understanding of the purpose of life without God. There's, there's no punches he's going to pull here. He's not trying to make it cute so that Oprah Winfrey will have him on her show. He's just telling you the truth. Guys, boys and girls, he's almost like an atheist evangelist. He's basically saying, listen, if you don't like this, get over it. This is what you will have to believe. And I've had people try to tell me as atheists, well, I don't believe with Alex Rosenberg. Okay, well, disprove him then. If, if you're the Protestant of atheism and he's the Roman Catholic of atheism, well, then disprove him. I can show as a Protestant the Catholic is wrong. I go to my standard. Prove him wrong. I, I will be his advocate. I've read his book. I understand his points. I'll be him. You defeat it. And as they trip and fall on their first step, skin their face across the ground, get back up with a bloody lip and a scab on their face, I begin to tell them, you haven't even started to disprove him. You haven't even gotten to the place where we can debate. You're still in the land of nonsense. You're still in a realm you don't even know you exist. 
let alone to have this discussion. So what did uh, Alex Rosenberg honestly tell us? He told us something so easy to understand. Any atheist can get it. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? Whatever physics says it is. And remember, physics don't say anything. You have to discover them. That's the problem of empiricism. He's living in his own death spiral, but follow him in his inconsistency. So what's the nature of reality? Whatever physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. Simple. There is no uh, purpose of the universe. Is there any difference between right, wrong, good, or bad? There is no more difference, no moral difference between them. That's honest. That's what Nietzsche believed. There is no difference between raping a child and raising your child. Zero. Deal with it. Move on. Stop pretending you're a Christian, you hypocrite atheist. Stop pretending you're like us and you think there's a difference. Not in your worldview. I'm glad you're hypocrites. Thank God more of you are not like Stalin and Hitler and so forth. Amen. Thank you for being hypocrites. But uh, in, a theolog- uh, in, a, in a philosophical debate, I will point out your inconsistency. So remember who you are and what you are and what substance you are and where everything has come from and what is sustaining everything. And to see the implications that come from that. The implications are that nothing's impossible with our God. And prayer changes things. And we ought to look at spiritual lives as being a great pursuit. And, and number two, we ought to base everything we do in the intellect and in the, the world we live in, in the time we're in, based on this principle. And then number three, find our purpose and our meaning in this vast world of spirit here in this place of natural things. Uh, find our purpose and meaning in natural things. The purpose and meaning of job, the purpose and meaning of marriage, the purpose and meaning of uh, school, the purpose and meaning of all of those things. Isn't that awesome? Find your purpose in that. Okay, the next one, which we may not have as much time to spend on because I got a little excited about the other one, is using that same kind of ratio. Most people, even Christians, think that the world is mostly good, the devil's just every now and then in some homeless person's life. That whatever evil we see on TV is just restricted to those neighborhoods, those people. And that really the idea of spiritual warfare, the idea of having everything go down a certain way with fighting demons and all of that is really just a small little thing. And it's supposed to be... uh, having it different. Uh, It's supposed to be spiritual warfare there and natural. I I didn't write these correctly. So here here is right. Some people view the normal life as this and then spiritual warfare as much bigger. This is the right way, but the wrong way is supposed to be uh, normal life up there and then spiritual warfare there. Does everybody get it? Oh, okay. Oh, so I put them like this. Okay, no wonder. I was like, why didn't that match? Thank you. This is the wrong way. This is the way most people think about it. Most people think that life's good. Bill Gates, mostly good. This person over here, mostly good. You know, every now and then, somebody does something stupid, murders their kids. Somebody over here does something foolish, does gangs, whatever. But for the most part, we're all cool. Everything's fine. The devil's just restricted to these little areas, and that's kind of like, he's winning over here. You know, go help those people. But that is exactly the opposite of what is going on. What's really going on is you are in an epic battle of the ages. Something like Lord of the Rings style. It has been going on for 6,000 years. He is coming to steal, kill, and destroy you. 
He has not backed down. He has not taken a break. He is not just found in the places where you and I find disinterest or find disgust. He is here now. He is attacking you now. He has legion set up to come against us as a church now. He has principalities and powers warring against you now. You are in the battle of the ages. And right now, your enemy, your enemy wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy every life. He wants to destroy every nation. He wants to destroy everything that God has done. And he is using in his deception every possible strategy that he can. And if you read something like the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, he'll awaken your mind to this reality through his fictional tale of one demon helping his younger demon apprentice do well in deceiving the businessman that he's been assigned to. And so he tells them, get him to think evil is only the things you see on Halloween. Get him to think that he is mostly good. These are the lies that work the best. These are the things that will keep him busy. Have him see promotion and job achievement as the highest level of his life. Let him see his nobility to his family and taking care of them as the greatest achievements of his life. Let him think only church is but a cherry on top of his already good life. These are the lies that work best. Deceive him. Keep him busy. Deceive the culture to think that all of these things are normal and natural. Give them the poison over time in small bits. And then you begin to realize that you've been deceived, to wonder if there's even a battle going on. It's almost like that part during Lord of the Rings when the Frodo and what was his assistant? Samwise. Thank you. I just looked over at you and I got it. It was like, it's like a barcode. I got what you were thinking. No, but were you thinking Samwise? I'm just being weird. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's a whole other discussion how sometimes I think eyes are the gateway to the soul, and they're like bar cords, and you can just look at somebody and just scan and get what's going on in their heart. But be careful with that. Don't call that prophetic because that can be very pathetic, okay? But sometimes you can feel like you can see what's going on inside the computer up there, you know? Frodo and Samwise get discouraged at some point in their journey of trying to destroy the ring and they say to each other, let's just go back. Let's go back to the Shire. None of this was going on in the Shire. None of these battles, none of these orcs, none of this evil, none of this was happening in the Shire. And if you know about uh, Peter Jackson and the way he directed the movies, he changed the music even according to the, the tone of the movie. And so whenever they talked about the Shire, the nice, happy, slower music came on with the bagpipes, kind of like that kind of Scottish Ireland stuff. And then the Sauron and the bad guys would come on and be like more of like the Toms. Boom, 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 boom. And so you can hear in the background this lull to go back to Shire. It's safe in Shire. There's no one in Shire understanding this. Shire is safe from this. And I can't quote exactly. I probably even had the characters wrong because it might have been Pippin and Mary. But whatever it is, at this point of the discussion, the other person looks back at them and says, there will be no Shire if we don't do what we're doing because it's happening all around Shire. Shire is this little speck that's, that's not really seen anything yet, but the entire world is at war. Shire's in make-believe. There is no place of peace in Middle Earth now. And the truth is, there is no place of peace here now. 
You think I'm just going to go out of ministry. I'm going to go get my job. I'm going to step out of the battle zone, go back to normal life. It doesn't cost all of this. (laughs) You have no idea. You have no idea what you're doing. The battle is raging. Most people have no idea what's going on around them right now. This is a war against a wicked spirit that wants to destroy us. When you see those things like rape and child molestation and genocide, you're seeing him unleashed. But he's that same one that comes to you at night to sow seeds of doubt. He is that same one that subtly draws you in through the temptations of your flesh, the tastes of your flesh, to put the aroma of that smell into your mouth and your mind into your nose, to draw you in. He has nothing but ill intent for you. He only wants to destroy you. And if he can move you further from the battle line, he is winning. He is winning. These are the scriptures that clearly teach this. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. The whole world. Well, I thought Jesus won. He did, but it has not been enacted. We're enacting it. That's why he got the authority that was given to us, and now we are enacting it. We are pushing back the gates of hell. It goes on in Ephesians in two places to talk about this. As for you, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Notice the language. They are dead. They don't get it. Bill Gates is out here trying to feed the homeless as they're both going to the same hell. Do you understand? You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Without embarrassing you, it's a typical thing. My wife even thought it until she was with the pilot and got to learn a little bit more about aerodynamics. But how many of you honestly have thought in the past or are thinking now that planes fly on air like boats float on water? How many of you have either thought that or you have believed that? Nobody? One? Why is that not true, those of you who are not raising your hands? Why is that not true, Marco? Why don't you believe that? Nope, has nothing to do with the answer, sorry. You're talking about force. Nope, not true. Gliders can do that without any force. Okay, so those of you who rose your hands probably should have because you don't know what you're talking about unless you can show me now. Uh, Oscar raised his hand and admitted he didn't. So, okay, let's go to Jackie. You... I uh, said, you didn't believe they float on air like boats float on water. Tell me why. Nope, totally wrong. It has nothing to do with aerodynamics. James, you didn't raise your hand. Okay, incorrect. Incorrect. I probably could have asked that question a lot better and got you to raise your hands because you don't know what you're talking about. You know why an airplane does not float on the air like a boat floats on the water is because air surrounds the plane. What a plane is like in comparison to a boat is a submarine. As a submarine is surrounded by water, the plane is surrounded by air. Can you get away from air on the planet? No, you would have to get down into the water, but not on the planet. What does the Bible say he is? He is the prince 
of what? The kingdom of the air. He's all around us. Now, he, he as the devil can't be in every place. He can only be in one place at one time. But these angels, these fallen creatures, these spirit beings surround us like the air. I like to think of it like radio waves. You can always pick up a radio station, even some of those like uh, other kind of like transistor radios. There's always air waves uh, uh, giving information. Wherever you are, your spirit can pick up or be deceived by the transmissions of Satan. You cannot escape it no more than a plane can escape air. A plane is not floating on air. A plane is flying through and in air. You are not escaping the devil. You are going through the devil. You are going around him and moving past him, and you are understanding his ways and having to conquer him, but you will not escape him. He'll come right into your room like air, He'll come right into your shower. He'll come right into your commute. He will meet you wherever you are. He is the prince of the kingdom of air. And so just now to finish the discussion on aerodynamics, what you're talking about is the force, lift, and glide is what makes a plane fly. But it has nothing to do with the force because gliders can glide. And once again, they're not gliding on the air. They're gliding in the air. And what is turbulence? Turbulence is air interacting with itself. Air on top of the wings with air underneath the wings having different pressures. That's what turbulence is. So think about that when you're flying. You're flying in the air, not just on the air. When we look at the next scripture, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, we see, finally, be strong in the Lord and in, the, in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You and I will be in a battle to the day we die. The question is, will you win that battle in Jesus' name? It's not a question of if you're going to be in a battle. The question is, are you going to win that battle? Now, thankfully, Jesus won it for us, gave us his victorious power, his name, his authority, and now upon that we stand in his victory. So I'm not fighting to achieve victory. I am fighting in victory, maintaining victory. So it's like the idea of king of the hill. God has given you this hill. Keep that hill. Keep that victory. And the only way that you will lose your victory over smoking, drinking, things God has set you free from, or the pornography, or anything else in your life, is if you retreat from Christ. You retreat from the place of victory. The devil can only take back what you give. He can only have authority where you've not had the biblical authority. Adam and Eve never would have been even had the chance, rather, to, to be tempted by the devil if they had not first desired to go see but what that tree had to offer them. That's why the Bible talks about uh, we're drawn away by our own temptations. We're drawn away by this in James chapter 1. And so some of the implications that we'll have when we look at the world uh, in this way is that uh, our God is a mighty warrior, a mighty warrior. Do not underestimate how powerful our God is as a mighty warrior. So in your battles with the devil, 
Understand the line of the tribe of Judah is with you. Think about uh, the battle there in a lion witch in the wardrobe with Aslan, the lion. You know, get some images in your mind and how powerful our God is. That's a great implication quickly through some more. Another implication is you can have victory over sin. You can have victory over evil. You can see demons cast out. You can really see God's power displayed upon the earth. Be bold. Don't be afraid. You know, just give your life for Jesus. Be like the great missionaries who surrendered everything to God, whether by life or by death. It's all God's anyways. You win. You've seen the end of the book. Amen? And then lastly, tell the world about a Jesus who's defeated their foes. You could say it like this. What's defeated you? My Jesus defeated. What is defeating you? My Jesus has defeated. And even if I don't see all the miracles in this life, I know that there's a life to come because... We're more spiritual than we are natural. Our spirits live on even when these bodies die. Amen. Father, we thank you today that you have been so good to us, that you have given us your word to open our minds so that we won't be deceived. Lord, let us not be deceived by a naturalistic world that tries to live godlessly without you. Help us to understand that you surround us you encompass us, and that everything right now is being sustained by you. May we trust you. May we love you. And Lord, help us to understand that we're in a battle and that we ought not to think it's strange when things go wrong and that if we think to ourselves quitting somehow gets us out of the battle, oh God, help us to realize that the only way forward, the only way forward is to stand in your victory and to walk by faith. Help us to be courageous. Make our weak hearts strong and brave. Send the fire. Jesus, like the old Salvation Hymn song, Salvation Army song, make our weak hearts strong and brave. Send your fire, O God. Use us for your glory, Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Love you guys. God.